American churches have never had more material wealth and prestige. Mega churches boast gorgeous campuses and thousands in attendance. Crowds flock to the latest church growth seminars to learn the secrets of success in the ministry. Now imagine a church that is on the verge of extinction, not because they are locked in tradition or have lost their vision, but because their members have had their belongings and property confiscated. Some of their major leaders are in prison, and some will face martyrdom. What chance does this small body have of making an impact on their city for Christ? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to open the Bible for yourself to discover what Christ has to say. The church that was on the verge of extinction was called Smyrna, and Revelation chapter 2 allows us to listen to the Lord Jesus as he evaluates their true worth. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, and learn about the church that looked like it was dirt poor, but in fact was filthy rich. My younger brother, Ron, is three years younger than I am. And I remember when I was about eight years old and Ron was five, my little brother Ron would come in and he would have just gotten, you know, we had some people like Ed Wilson in our church family that would give out some coins and everything. I would take the quarter that I had received at church from my Ed Wilson person that was giving me the quarter. And my little brother would be holding in his grimy little mitts one of these. He would pull out, because every once in a while, maybe we'd have a loved one that would send us a letter, and my little five-year-old brother would have one of these. And I would get it, I'd sit down with him, and I'd put my arm around his shoulder, and I would say, Ron, look what I have. Man, it's hard, you know, I'd even drop on the floor and see it. It makes noise, and it's really a neat thing. It's much heavier than what you've got. And then I would go into this long, lengthy presentation about the fact that paper's not worth anything. Paper is just cheap stuff. You can easily tear it, and it's easy to get crinkled up in your pocket. In fact, if you put this in your pants and run it through the washer, it's going to be just fine. It's not going to hurt at all. But if you put this through the washer, man, it's going to be ruined and just be a bunch of little pieces. And time and time again, I would con my brother out of his dollar bill for my 25 cents. I would give him 25 cents, and he'd give me his dollar. You say, man, what kind of a big brother are you? Well, I was a rich big brother, and he was poor. (laughs) Why could I do that to Ron? Because he was too young to understand value. He was too young to understand that a dollar bill is a lot more valuable than a 25-cent piece. You know, I think it's very possible that we can be like my little brother Ron. We can be immature that we don't understand what really is worth something, what really has values. Thinking about it from a church standpoint, as American believers, we have an idea that if uh, all the bills are being paid, like if we can powerfully work and we want the Lord to work, but we can have money flowing in in the offering plate, and if we can have just hundreds of people coming, and if we can have beautiful buildings and lots of programs, and if we can become the talk of the area, then we hold that we are a rich church. We're a strong church. We hold as individuals that if we're doing really well, if we have a job where we're making maybe 200000 a year and we're able to go out and build a really beautiful home, we're able to drive about three different brand new cars, and we're able to travel and take vacations around the world, as American believers, we feel, man, life really has value if we have those things. 
And we can well up in our pride as individuals and say, we're invincible, we're going to last forever. I believe that right now is one of the most seductive times for me and for you. Because it's easy for us to begin to think that if we have stuff, if we have material things, that we're really rich, that we're really valuable. You measure your value in life from what you have. And if those things were ever taken away from you, then you would lose your value. I want you to imagine a church, their budget was less than $100 a week because all of their material things, their home, their clothes, all their TV sets, everything was taken away from them. People broke into their homes and stole all of their stuff. They had been wealthy. They had been prosperous business people. But people in their neighborhood broke into their homes and stole all their stuff. So now in their offerings, they have hardly anything to give. Suppose that all of their leadership had been put in the Dallas County Jail. So when they gather together on Sunday, they're they're not even a hundred strong now. There's just a few, maybe 35 or 40 people that are meeting and their leaders are imprisoned. And I say, which church is going to make an impact on this city? We've got another church over here with thousands of people coming and this little bitty church that's really being attacked, being persecuted very strongly. Which church is really rich? Is it the church that has the Mercedes driving up and the Lexuses riding up and the beautiful new cars riding up? Or is it that little fledgling group? What do you think? Well, today we're going to have an opportunity to have Jesus walk into our midst. He's going to walk into our homes. He walks into our church. And we're going to talk today about a church that was dirt poor. But as Jesus moves in their midst, we find out that Jesus declares that they're filthy rich. In other words, from the human vantage point, they are dirt poor. But when we look into God's word and when Jesus looks at this church, we find out that this is the church that was really rich. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to talk to you about the church of Smyrna. We're going to move a little bit to the north uh, from Ephesus. We talked last week about a church that had truth but no love. Today we're going to talk about a church that is under the grind of persecution. They're being persecuted. They're having their goods confiscated. And yet we're going to find out that this church that looks like they'll have no influence at all is going to have an influence that lasts and endures and is much more powerful than all the other seven churches that are talked about it. You pick up the story in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Remember, we have the risen, ascended Christ, the glorified Christ that's moving throughout his people. He's moving throughout these seven churches. And John, the great apostle on the island of Patmos, is writing back to seven churches which become representatives of the kinds of churches that are going to be present down through the ages. At all different times of church history, we're going to have some churches that have truth and no love. We're also going to have some churches that appear to be very poor because they're undergoing tremendous persecution. But we're going to find out in the course of time that they have incredible power and influence. And that's what the church of Smyrna is about. It says to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna. So we probably dropped one messenger off. Probably we had seven messengers to start out with. We have one messenger that stopped in Ephesus and left the book of Revelation and had the book of Revelation read to the church of Ephesus. Now we have six going up to Smyrna. 
Or maybe we have one messenger going up to Smyrna now and the other six scattering out to the other seven churches. We have another messenger going up and the angel, this messenger, is going to come and give this revelation to the angel of the church in Smyrna. You say, Dave, what was it like when this messenger came into the city of Smyrna? So you can have an idea, so you can kind of live in the city. Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. It's an incredibly beautiful country. It's, the, it's kind of like a mixture of land and mountains and sea. So you have this beautiful Aegean Sea and you have islands that are out there, not like the Gulf of Mexico, but the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea has many different islands. So you have little islands that you can kind of move off the coast. And you've got the city of Smyrna. As you come into the city, it's a city of about 200,000 people. So that'll give you kind of an idea of the population of Smyrna. There's a large mountain that's just off the sea that's about 500 feet high. And up on top of that mountain are beautiful uh, governmental buildings. You know, you think of the Acropolis in Athens, those kind of beautiful Greek and Roman buildings are up there in the Acropolis. As you move into the city, there's a major street called the Golden Street, and it does kind of a crescent arc around that beautiful mountain, that mountain called Pegasus. And this street was called the Golden Street. At one end of this beautiful colonnaded street was a temple to Apollo and the great god of the sun. And then you had at the other end of that street, you had a temple to Sibeli, who was a fertility goddess of Asia Minor of Turkey. In between, you had various temples, like to Asclepius, who was the god of healing. You had another temple to the beautiful Aphrodite, which is again was a fertility goddess. And you have all these different pagan temples that are in between these two major temples, which were the largest temples in the ancient world. One of the major temples, which was built in 26 AD in the time of Tiberius, and that's the Caesar that was the Caesar when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified about 33 AD. In 26 AD, this city of Smyrna won a competition over Ephesus and over Pergamum, which were their competing cities, and Smyrna won the right to build a beautiful temple honoring the Roman emperor. Tiberius, and they built this beautiful, beautiful Roman temple, and now, many years later in the early 90s, from 26, now we're in the early 90s, now Smyrna has become the capital city for the worship of the Roman emperor. And the emperor Domitian has declared that everybody in the emperor, like if we were living in the city of Smyrna, one of those 200,000, we would be under a decree by the emperor Domitian that once a year we had to go to that Roman temple. And in that Roman temple we needed to burn some incense and then we needed to stand before a statue of the Roman emperor and declare, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Curios. Just imagine that. Suppose you lived in a country where suddenly the laws went out throughout the land and in order to carry around business, in order to carry on business, in order to be able to get food at the grocery store, you had to go. It was just a perfunctory act for many of your friends. They thought very little of it. You just went and took a little pinch of, of incense, burned it, and then knelt before this altar and this idol of the emperor, and you declared, Kaiser Curios, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. That's all you needed to say. Well, guess what? As believers... They had trouble with that in Smyrna. 
They couldn't do that in Smyrna because during the time period that Paul was ministering in Ephesus, we learn that the gospel went throughout Asia Minor. We don't know exactly how the church was founded. There's some church fathers that say the Apostle Paul visited Smyrna on his way to Ephesus, and that might have been how the church was founded. It might have been founded the way the church in Colossae was founded, by having someone from Ephesus that was a hometown boy from Smyrna that got saved under the Apostle Paul's ministry and took the gospel to the next city up to Smyrna. We don't know how the church was founded, but we know that by the time of the early 90s, that there was a strong body of committed believers in the city of Pergamos. In this very powerful, the leading city of Asia, along with Ephesus and Pergamum. And yet they're under this decree from the Roman emperor that they need, in order to carry out business, in order to have their place in society, they need to bow before this idol of the emperor, and many of them would not do it. When you did do that, they would give you a certificate and you would need to carry that certificate with you. And if you did not have that certificate with you, you could be imprisoned and you could also be accused of traitor, being a traitor against the Roman Empire, of being an insurrectionist, and you could lose your life. So that's what the church is facing. That's a tremendous pressure, a tremendous burden. That's what's going on in the city and the church of Pergamum. Jesus walks in among them. And look what Jesus says. We have Jesus coming in. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life again. The very first thing Jesus says to this church is facing persecution, facing possibly even martyrdom. He says, you need to remember the vision of chapter one. You need to remember the vision of the exalted Christ. I want all of you to remember this isn't just a cultural thing. This isn't just an issue of telling some nice stories about Jesus. I want you to ask yourself, who do you believe is first in your life? The idea of being first and last means that you were here before you came into existence. Who was here before you came into existence? Who was here before the world came into existence? Because this little title, the first and the last, was used in Isaiah, for example, for the Lord Yahweh. Some of you have heard of Jehovah's Witnesses, and Jehovah's Witnesses will claim that Jesus is a son of God, but he's not distinctly the son of God. And here's some great passages to use to show what you need to be committed to is that Jesus is one with the Father. All that the Father is in his character, he is. How do I know that? Because this is a title, the first and the last, is a title that's used about four times in the book of Isaiah for Yahweh, for Jehovah of the Old Testament. And here, the New Testament has no problem at all taking that title and saying Jesus, like Yahweh, is the first and the last. What it means in the book of Isaiah is that he's the creator. It means that Yahweh is the author that was here before all things came to existence. What John is declaring is that your Savior that we're celebrating and we're worshiping, your Savior was here before creation existed. Before there was anything, Jesus was already present. He was first. He was first. What does it mean that he's the last? When all the smoke is cleared. In other words, if you were living in the first century and I'm giving this letter to you in the church of Smyrna and you're under a decree that you need to go and worship the emperor Domitian, what are you thinking? What can this little fledgling group of believers do? 
What in the world can this little group of believers do? We're not going to be able to eat. We're going to have our homes confiscated. We might even lose our lives. Man, why not just give in to the emperor Domitian because he's all-powerful? You know what the Lord Jesus is reminding them of? Man, don't do that. Don't swear your allegiance to Domitian. Don't swear your allegiance to this Roman emperor. Why? Because when all the smoke is cleared, who's going to still be standing? Jesus. I want to challenge you. Why are we committed to worshiping Jesus? Why am I challenging you to build your whole life on Jesus? Why are we going to be willing to risk our kids? You say, Dave, why in the world do you let your stupid older kids go to Israel and do street evangelism right in the streets of Jerusalem? Why in the world are you and Dan and Pat Riggin going to go to Albania to teach people about Jesus? Why do that? That's crazy. Because I want you to know something. When all the smoke is cleared, no matter what happens to any of us physically, when all the smoke is cleared, who's going to be present? Tell me. When all the smoke is cleared, tell me, who's going to be present? Jesus. And I got news for you. You might choose to live a nice, comfortable life without Jesus, and you're not safe at all. Man, you might slip on a slippery bathtub, crack your head on the side, and you're just as dead as if you're one of the martyrs for the church. It's just the way life is. All of our lives are uncertain. What Jesus is saying is don't be afraid about what people can do to you physically. Don't be afraid about the slander against you. Don't be afraid about lies about you. Don't be afraid about persecution. Why not? Because Jesus is the first. He was there in the beginning. And guess what? When the game is over, who wins? Jesus. He's the last. You know what else? It says he's not only the one who's the first and the last, but he says he's the one that was dead. You know, there's a lot of people you can make that statement of. There's a lot of people that are dead. Okay, I can look back, my dad's dead, and different people in our church family have gone on, they're dead. So there's a lot of people you can say, look at that statement there. It says, Jesus says that he is the one who died. You can make that statement of a lot of people. But look at the next statement. Jesus says, I'm the one who died, and I'm the one who came to life again. I want you to look at that phrase. I'm the one who came to life again. You say, Dave, why do you believe in Jesus? Why is this Jesus thing so important? Because there's not another being in all of the universe that you can make that statement about. That he died and he took his life back again. I want you to understand the implications of this. These believers are getting this message and some of their own number are going to be martyred for the faith. Suppose you're sitting in jail and you get, a, you get this message from the Apostle John who's in exile, and you're sitting in jail on death row because you won't battle the emperor, can you imagine the comfort there would be when you get this phrase, Jesus declares that he's the one who already went through death for you. He's the one that's already been there. He's the one that's already experienced that. And what did it say? But he came back to life again. Do all of you believe that about Jesus? I want you to realize how precious that is. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. We are worshiping a Savior. And he, by the way, is the only Savior in all the universe that you can make that claim. The reason you don't have to be afraid today, no matter what you might be facing, physical illness, challenges in economics, challenges for your family. Man, Jesus says, I've experienced the worst that Satan can throw at me. Jesus said, I died. 
And what an incredible assurance. He says, but I'm the one who came back to life again. Now, that's why you don't bow down to Domitian. Domitian can't say, I died and I came back again. The Antichrist is going to try to fake that at the end of time. He's going to try to fake a resurrection. But Jesus is the only one that can really go into the jaws of death and say, I can come back again. The foundation of our faith is that we're a group of people that believe that Jesus is the first and the last. And we believe that Jesus is the one who died, took the heaviest thing that Satan could bring against him, and Jesus rose again. He came to life again. He's the one who died, but he lives. And that's why I trust him. That's why I bow before him. That's why I worship him. What comfort that brought to the church. Here we have Jesus, the Savior, affirming his identity. But Jesus has some other words of encouragement for them. Look what he says. I know, verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. This is an incredible promise to these people. Jesus now is saying, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who was dead and I've come to life. But now he starts to give comfort. This, This is the Savior's comfort. And Jesus comes in and he puts his arm around this church and he says to every one of these believers, I know the tribulations. The word afflictions is the word for tribulations. I know the hard times that you're going through. I know your poverty. That was the major hard time they were going through. It's like in the book of Hebrews. We have documented evidence. In the first century, as believers started to proclaim Christ and started to have others come to know Christ, their goods would be confiscated. They would go in like mobs would go in and just take all of their belongings. They'd come home and their homes would be burned to the ground or torn apart. This isn't just something that's way out there and a message that's way in the past, but there are believers just like you in other parts of the world that experience exactly what was happening to these believers. In Egypt, in Egypt, there's an ancient church called the Coptic Church. It traces its root. Remember the marvelous story when Philip the eunuch was taken away from a marvelous revival in Samaria? He was taken down to the Gaza Strip that's so much in the news today with the Palestinians. He was taken down to the Gaza Strip and the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the book of Isaiah and Philip won him to the Lord. Well, that Ethiopian eunuch went back into Ethiopia and Egypt and founded a church. And the Coptic church is one of the most ancient churches for many years that's been dead, but there's some signs of life, and there's also signs of some movement for evangelical faith in the nation of Israel. When I was in Cairo visiting as a tourist, I remember sitting around the pyramids thinking, there's no witness for God here in the city of Cairo. Myth, just thousands of people, people everywhere, people hanging on buses, and I'm thinking, there's no witness for Christ. I remember doubting, man, how could Jesus be the Lord? When there's no witness in this Cairo, this marvelous Islamic city, there's no witness for Jesus. But when I got more knowledgeable about missions, I found at the very time when I was in Egypt thinking there was no witness, there were pastors like myself that were even on the radio in Cairo proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And they were having such an impact that the Islamic fundamentalists were trying to hold them down. Well, just recently, in a town in Egypt... Some Islamic fundamentalists just went into the Christian churches and just leveled them and just butchered many of the people. Some of the leaders of the church went running up to the capital of Egypt to say, we need help. And the Islamic fundamentalists in Cairo said, if you think you've seen something, you haven't seen anything yet. And they intensified the persecution. Now, we have a tendency to go, oh, horrors, I just can't believe that. Man, that would be an awful thing. And yes, it would be an awful thing. But I want to share something with you about spiritual realities. You know what? 
When a church family goes through that kind of hard times, that kind of tribulation, Jesus comes to that group and says, you know what? I know your afflictions. I know what you're going through. I know your hard times. I know you've lost your things. And Jesus isn't one of these people that comes from far away. Jesus himself experienced that kind of persecution. Jesus knows what it is to have everything taken off and your clothes stripped off. And he he knows what it is to face martyrdom for the cause of his father. No matter what hard time, if the church in Egypt might go through, or the church in Indonesia might go through, or we might go through in our own individual lives, or as a church family. Rather than being horrified, we need to realize that we follow a Savior that we cannot lose the thing most precious to us. Because an enemy might be able to take away our life, but they can't take away our personality and our existence and our eternal life with Jesus. All they can do is take our physical life, but we found a Savior that's given us eternal life that lasts forever and ever and ever. And I want you to think about whether or not you really believe that. Or whether you just have a cultural idea of this Christianity thing. Because Jesus won't work if you're just kind of treating him as a peripheral thing, as an outside thing. He needs to be your Lord. He needs to be the emperor of your life. Not Domitian. Not your job. Not your boss. Not your career. Nothing can be the emperor of your life. Jesus has to be. Why? Because he's the only one that can wrap his arms around you in the midst of your affliction that says, hey, I know what you're going through. I see your poverty. You know, one of the things I want to challenge you is about belief. said, you'd say, Dave, why should I care about the poor? Why should I spend some time with some people like you've been describing? Because you'll meet Jesus. I'm not just talking about poverty being a great thing. The Bible doesn't exalt poverty. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that often it's the people that don't have anything that have everything. That's why you need to spend time with all different kinds of, of God's family. It's why some of you need to go ahead and step out of your comfort zones and, and go and be with other parts of the body of Christ and other parts of the world. You find out that some people that don't have anything, that have had life through its biggest curves and biggest disasters you could ever have, you find that they know things about Jesus that those of us that are so comfortable don't even understand. In fact, some of you can remember a time in your life where you were hiding under beds for the cause of Jesus and the bullets were whistling over your head. And most of us here, you tell those stories. In fact, in our church family here, we had a missionary member that was taken captive in the southern Philippines. And he was taken on a boat. And man, he didn't know at any minute they had pistols to his head. And we had him actually stand before us sharing his testimony. Some of you were here that day. Some of my friends when I was growing up, like when uh, Dr. Paul Carlson was killed... The fellow that reached over the wall and grabbed the doctor and tried to pull him over that wall, Chuck Davis was his name. He tried, as he was pulling him over the wall, just when he got him over, the African Simbers opened up fire and Paul Carlson was blown into eternity. And his hand went lifeless in his grip and he had to let him go. And as I talked to Chuck about that experience, it was a devastating thing. It was a hard thing. But you know what you find when you talk to people like that? Jesus has come and he knows them. And they experienced an intimacy with Jesus. They experienced a a closeness with Jesus. They experienced almost like a window into the eternity that those of us that haven't been underneath that pressure have just never experienced. And that's what Jesus is promising here. Like, I don't want any of you to sit there saying, man, I could never face that. The Lord's not going to give you dying grace till you're dying. 
The Lord's not going to give you the grace to handle this kind of pressure till you're in this situation. What I'm saying to you as your pastor, I want you to grab strongly hold of Jesus and let him grab, because what's really important is for him to grab a hold of you, which he does. And he comes to you and says, listen, I know what you're going through. And I know your poverty. And then he says this to the Smyrna believers. Man, they don't have any good. And he says, you know what, guys? He says, you're rich. You are really rich. Look at it. This is incredible. They don't have hardly any material goods. They're, they're, they've got things confiscated. They're in prison. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Isn't that incredible? Notice they're also facing the next verse. The next line says, I know the slander or the blasphemy, the lies that are said. Slander is telling lies. I know the lies that are being said about you by the Jews that are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Everybody stay with me. Listen very carefully. How in the world could John call Jews saying you're not really Jews and when you gather together, the word synagogue means to gather together, you're actually the gathering together of Satan. John is picking up on what Jesus said in John chapter 8. During the whole ministry of Jesus, Jewish leaders opposed Jesus. They were religionists that were seeking to keep their own pockets full They wanted to keep their own influence. And Jesus did miracles in front of them. Jesus raised the dead like Lazarus was raised just a few miles from Jerusalem. Many of the Jewish leaders knew Lazarus. Many of them actually saw Lazarus dead and actually saw Lazarus alive. And yet they still hardened their heart. And in John chapter 8, Jesus had to talk with them. And the Jewish leader says, man, we are Abraham's children. And Jesus says, no, you're not. They said, oh, yes, we are. We are physically Abraham's children. And Jesus says, that's true. You're physically Abraham's children. But if you were really Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham does. And that means that you would love my father. And if you love my father genuinely, it leads to loving me. And I want you to understand this connection. It's very, very important. Everybody in the world that claims to love God And this is a very hard thing in the midst of the plurality and and all the mushy-mush about spiritual thinking today in the world. We live in a world that wants to say that you can believe anything you want to about God, and that's okay. Biblically, if you love God, you're eventually going to be on your knees before Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Biblically, if you love God then you're eventually going to be on your knees before Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus came from God. He is the Son of God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. So if you're relating intimately to God, then you eventually relate intimately to Jesus. In the first century, the major opposition against believers in Jesus was cultural Judaism. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about Jews that had missed the promise of the Old Testament, that the Messiah was coming. And they were trying just to keep the church going, their synagogue going, their sacrifices going, their moralism going, all the religion going. And when people came and said, listen, God has sent his son. His son is the ultimate sacrifice for sins. The son of God fulfilled the promises of Isaiah 53 and of Psalm 16. And Jesus has risen from the dead. These religionists did everything they could to stop that witness. In fact, right here in the city of Smyrna, 50 years after John wrote this epistle, there was a man who was a disciple of John the Apostle. His name was Polycarp. 
As a young man, Polycarp studied with the writer of the book of Revelation. Polycarp matured. He became the bishop or the overseer of the church of Smyrna. Fifty years after John the Apostle wrote this letter in the middle 90s, Polycarp faced a raging mob in the city of Smyrna. They went out and gathered wood. Even though it was the Sabbath, the Jews of Smyrna went out and gathered wood and piled it high and joined the pagan Roman Greeks to demand that Polycarp be burned at the stake. They tied him to a stake and they ignited a big pile like they have at the A&M bonfire before the Texas A&M game. And that old man, Polycarp, was 86 years of age when he died in the flames. And this is what he said. Before he was martyred, he said this. He looked at the crowd when they asked him one more time to bow to the Roman emperor that was the emperor at that time. He said, I am 86 years of age. And I have served my Christ for 86 years. And he has never done me wrong. He said, how could I now deny him? I've served my Christ for 86 years. He's never done me wrong. How could I ever deny him now? And then his life went up in flames. Twelve believers in the city of Smyrna, in the church of Smyrna, lost their life. From the time that John wrote this letter until the time of the end of the persecution. So this is a very real thing. And Jesus has come to them and saying, I know that those hard times are coming. I know that those great attacks are going to come. And the reason the Jewish people, we're not talking about all synagogues being the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue in Smyrna had become the synagogue of Satan. Because they were mounting opposition against the proclamation of truth. Now what I want to say, one of the saddest things about history is, the Jewish synagogue persecuted the fledgling little Christian church until the time of Constantine. But in 315 and then in 325, when Christianity was made the leading religion of the Roman Empire, suddenly Christianity became the political power block. And the Christians that were persecuted from the time of the first century until the third centuries, suddenly the persecuted became the power people and the persecuted became the persecutors. And the sad thing of history is, is that just like Judaism in the first century had become a religion that had lost intimacy with God and was not concerned about truth, but was concerned about maintaining their buildings, maintaining their moral standards, maintaining all their system. Christianity did exactly the same thing culturally. And so Jewish synagogues were burned to the ground by supposed Christians. Jews were forced to receive Jesus as the Messiah or else lose all their possessions. Jews were forced to run all over the world. Some of the horrible things in the Crusades, entire Jewish villages were indiscriminately just wiped out by the thousands people died. You come into a more modern time and the Russian, in Russian, the pogroms, suddenly whole Jewish communities would be just, just blown away. And then you all know the ultimate horror of Nazi Germany in World War II. What I want to share with you, John was not being anti-Semitic when he talked about the synagogue of Satan. 
If John the Apostle were here today, he would say that a Christian church, that in the name of Jesus, ever uses its power and politics in order to force people to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, they have denied the basic tenet of our Christian faith. You know what that is? That every person has to decide to believe for themselves. At the Christian church, we need to be committed to the free flow of spiritual ideas. That we can let the gospel enter the marketplace. We need to challenge people to receive Jesus, but we can never, never, never use power. We can never use force. Do you understand that? Because right now we're in major culture wars where there's groups of people that say we need to use power to get people to respond and to do what we want them to do. And I want you to remember that we used to be the persecuted. We need to be a people that call for the free flow of ideas or else we become the synagogue of Satan. We become the group that deny the freedom of the individual. You're horrified. Why did an Islamic fundamentalist suddenly go into a Coptic church and butcher everybody there? Because an Islamic fundamentalist believes you can take the sword and you can say you either acknowledge Allah and Muhammad is his prophet or you die. Jesus says, stand up. I'm going to come to you as a lowly baby in a manger. I'm going to come to you as a man. I'm going to give you all my credentials, but you're going to stand on the edge of eternity and you have to decide. And I will never use the sword in the age of grace to force you to do anything. Whosoever will may come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. Never forced. Brothers and sisters, think clearly. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that becomes the bedrock of all individual freedom because the ultimate God of the universe has chosen to not force you, but to invite you. And we need to be very careful that it doesn't be said, the tragedy of church history is that many times what was supposed to be the place where the gospel was proclaimed, it became the synagogue of Satan, the gathering of Satan. To cause people to be persecuted, people to be killed by the thousands. And so today, as we try to reach Jews with the gospel of Christ, one of the hardest hurdles to get over is what about all the persecution against the Jewish people? How can we turn that around? The Jews that you know at work, you're trying to love them. You're trying to understand them. You respect their holidays and you respect them. But you also try to get across to them that Jesus is not the God of Christendom. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and you tell the truth. It means that you're really careful not to tell anti-Semitic jokes. You don't talk about Jews. And, and I even have some things that come out from my background in New Jersey that I have to guard my tongue. In fact, over in Israel one day, I talked about Jewing somebody down. And my Jewish guide called me up short just like that. Man, I spent the next 40 minutes trying to get out of that one. I eventually had to put my arms around Mary and say, Mary, I am really wrong. Forgive me for saying that. Will you forgive me? And she did. You see how easily those things can creep out? I want it to be every race, Islamic people, Jewish people, Hindu people. We understand that Jesus is the only truth, but we respect all their rights to believe individually what they want to believe, and we call for the free flow of ideas. Because when the gospel is allowed to run freely on the streets of a culture, 
It'll win because it's the truth. And Jesus will stand. You understand what I'm saying? We need to be really careful. We talk about the synagogue of Satan. And we read what the first century apostles were saying about the Jewish opposition. We need to understand that in the flow of history. The church of Smyrna, the Lord promises that though their enemies are going to try to suck away life from them, as we close, the Lord makes an incredible promise to them. It says this. Do not be afraid what you're about to suffer. I love that. Stop being afraid of what the Lord says. I tell you that the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days, just a short period of time. The 10 days stand for maybe a 10-day imprisonment that some of them went through or a short period of time. But the Lord says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The Lord Jesus is the first and the last. He's the only one that can tell us, don't be afraid, because you're going to go through a time of testing. You're going to go through a time of suffering. But it's only going to last a short time, and then you're going to be given the crown of life. I want us to rejoice today. I want us to rejoice that some of you hold babies in your arm. The Savior that we've talked about is a Savior that as you hold the baby in your arm, you can say no matter what persecution we might ever face, no matter what hard times we might ever face, it's going to be okay. Because Jesus can give the crown of life. The crown of life was like the crown was an athletic wreath that they gave to victors. And 1 John chapter 5 says, he, Who is he that overcomes? It's the one that believes that Jesus is the Christ. If you're believing today that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, you're an overcomer. And Jesus promises you that you will be an overcomer with him. And you're going to receive the crown of life. You don't have to be afraid. Somebody might threaten your physical life. Somebody might threaten your physical well-being. But what the church of Pergamum learned was that because Jesus can give the crown of life, they don't need to be afraid of the first death. Because as soon as they die, they'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord. The second death is talked about at the end of the book of Revelation. And that's the death you need to be afraid of. That's the death that those that don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, that don't believe he died for them, that don't believe he rose again. Revelation closes saying, that's the death you need to be afraid of. Don't ever be afraid of the first death. If you know Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. Because you'll only experience physical death and you'll find out that all that is is a transition right into the presence of Jesus to enjoy the crown of life forever and ever and ever. Was John's message to the church of Smyrna true? Were they really rich? Guess what? The church of Ephesus was the dominant church in the first century, and it was dominant for 300 years. Big major church councils were held there. But guess what? Of all the seven churches that we're studying, there's only one church that it still has, the city is still existing, And there's still a Christian church in that city. Of all the seven churches, there's only one city and only one church that 2,000 years later still has a Christian witness. The city is still existing. Guess which church it is? The Church of Smyrna. The persecuted church was the church that was really rich. They didn't look like they had a very strong light, but they had reality. They had commitment to the biblical Christ. And their testimony has lasted for 2,000 years. It's the modern city of Izmir, a beautiful Turkish city. And they're still, in spite of crusades, in spite of Islamic domination, they're still a Christian witness in the city of Izmir, the ancient city of Smyrna. Father, I thank you that your word is true. I thank you, Lord, that though this church was persecuted, that it had power. 
And I want to ask you, Lord, that you would use the message to this church that was really facing the ultimate question because of their faith. Use what we've learned today to challenge us to ask ourselves, do we have just a cultural relationship with Jesus? Or have we made the same kind of commitment that a soldier makes to his country? Lord, help us to realize that in life that there are ultimate commitments that need to be made. And Jesus, the commitment to him, is that ultimate commitment. That we need to have a relationship with Jesus that we're willing to give our belongings, we're willing to give our lives, we're willing to give everything we have, because he is the first and the last. He is the one who was dead and yet lives forevermore. I'd ask you, Lord, that your precious Holy Spirit would help us to be an American church, that though we are rich materially, we're enjoying all the benefits of America. Help us not to be lulled to sleep. Help us to realize there's nothing wrong with those riches, but there's something very wrong with thinking that our life consists in those things. I pray that we'll realize that our true riches are in Jesus alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.